This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. In October of this year, we aired our first focus on Afghanistan, looking at the thousands of Afghans stranded after the UK withdrew from the country. Today, we look at the situation from the perspective of the United States. With me is Suzanne Jalbert, who served as the chief of party on the USAID Promote Women in Government project. She details the stories and struggles of trying to evacuate the thousands of people connected to this USAID project. Seema pushed through those crowds with her two sisters, and she couldn't get through Taliban, she couldn't get through people that were protecting the airport itself, but she saw a US military man, and she handed him her passport and her sister's passport, and opened it to the page where it showed that she was eligible for the US special immigration visa. He closed them, put them in his pockets and gave them his hand to help got them safely into the airport. Suzanne Jalbert currently serves as senior advisor for the Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Afghanistan Regional Business Unit at Chemonix, which implements many USAID-funded projects. There is a link in the show notes where you can donate to support the evacuation efforts Suzanne talks about today. Suzanne Jalbert, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. So can you tell me a little bit about when the USAID Promote Women in Government program was started in Afghanistan? So the USAID Promote Women in Government project actually kicked off in April of 2015. It's implemented by Commodics International. But there's an important little caveat to recognize here. Commodics International has implemented for USAID for over 20 years on 26 projects. And even today, we have three live projects and several, probably not quite 100, employees still on the ground there. In Kabul specifically? Yes, we still have people, not just in Kabul, because we implement nationally. So we have people that we're very concerned about. And then I'll get into my concern for my team as we talk. Okay, so just so listeners are clear that there is USAID is the bilateral aid that's being given from the US government to, in this case, Afghanistan, the previous Afghan government. But the project that was being implemented was being done so by a company called Chemonix. That's correct. So the United States Agency for International Development doesn't actually produce their own projects. They lay out a scope of work that they want to achieve that's in alignment with our government and the government that we're assisting. So in this case, USAID funded, and this is important to note, the largest women's empowerment project at around $310 million ever, ever in the world. It's the largest amount of money we've ever put toward women's rights, women's economic empowerment, women's role in civil society. It was was simply phenomenal. And um, it was divided into four task orders for economy, civil society, leadership, and then my project, women in government. So it was huge. If you look at just my staff alone, my staff numbers totaled 204. We enrolled 3,901 young women to move them into working for government officials and government agencies. So it's an enormous number. 
So it's a, it's a huge project, multiple sort of schemes or avenues that this project is being implemented. You were in charge of the promoting women in government sort of component of this larger project. And you said over 3,000 women. So what exactly did this project do? Like, you know, how did it actually promote women in government? That's a great question. And in fact, we had over 21 indicators for that purpose that we were trying to achieve. But I'll break it down into just three. There are three main overarching goals that we endeavored to achieve through the project. First, facilitate actual entry into decision-making roles in the government. And then second, uh, we do want the government to welcome them. So encourage a hospitable environment for female staff in the government. And then third was to, in general, society to the government is increase the local stakeholder for the women in civil service. So women in general were welcomed into the economic sphere to begin with, and now we're pushing them into the government, which is a male domain. So you, you can see how many cross-sectoral kinds of things we had to look at to get full engagement. Over five years before the fall of the Afghan government in August of this year, what impact did it have? Like, you know, were there more, in, by the end of you know 2020 or so, was, how many women were actually working in government? We were writing on a high by the end of the five years. So I'll give you just a few of the final outcomes. So I mentioned in the beginning, we actually enrolled 3,901 young women into a full one-year program. We graduated from that program 3,059. We employed 1,778. We measured from the beginning to the end an 8% stakeholder increase in attitudinal shift. Now, when you're looking at a tradition, a traditional, a very hypercultural society, that's an enormous leap. And then we were able to support 15 legal policies that helped position women in the workplace, reduced harassment, um, looked at infrastructure, looked at their safety issues. So, and we even had some cabinet buy-in to those policies. So then to go from riding this high in the middle of 2020 to the low that we hit on August 15th has been devastating. I mean, not just for me, but for the men and women that worked on this program. Before we get to August 15th, obviously, you know, there were many reports in the New York Times and the Washington Post about the sort of slow progression of the Taliban covering most of the territory of Afghanistan. And it wasn't until August when Kabul fell. At what point did your program start talking about the Taliban's advance across the country and what it might mean for the program and project that you were working on? I'll frame that just a little bit differently. One of the things that we need to remember about Afghanistan, we continually talked about it being post-conflict. It was never post-conflict. There was conflict across Afghanistan all the time, all 20 years. And we had to be enormously careful with our staff and with our interns to keep them safe when we were rolling out programs. And we had a very special, unique security team within Comonics that helped us do that. So I don't think that we can look at it as, when did X happen? Taliban was always there. Taliban was always working against the U.S. government and against the Afghan government to retake control. At no point did we look at one another and from today or tomorrow. 
Instead, we looked at it from the control aspect. There were enough troops on the ground. ISAF was on the ground with all the multinational troops. It wasn't just the United States. And Afghans were training up their own troops. So even today, when I speak with my staff, they're in utter shock that it could have collapsed in the way that it did. There was not an expectation that today we'll be organizing a program and tomorrow we'll be running for our lives. That's a hard reality to absorb. So where were you when you found out that there was a collapse in the government? I was actually home in Colorado. So the project officially closed in July 2020. And we continued to ride, you know, the adrenaline rush. We did great. We're so proud of our achievements. And then through June and July, you could see Taliban starting in the south, moving over to the west, coming around to the north, and you just knew that they were going to drop down into Kabul. But even as late as July and August, my team is still saying Kabul will hold. Afghan troops will hold. We're trained. We understand democracy. They never, never believed that there would be such an utter rapid collapse that we saw. That's quite surprising, isn't it? I mean, like, why was there such a dissonance? I think the disconnect is that for 20 years, we've been teaching them about rights, human rights, women's rights, the right to vote, democracy, and what looks like. And the people that worked for all of the aid projects, and it doesn't matter what country, you know, if it was a European country or if it was the U.S., the Aussies were there too. They saw hope for a different kind of life that was different from the 90s Taliban. And that hope is imbued in the youth and in women. So I don't think they could let themselves believe that there would be a return to the 90s, especially if they'd already lived under it. And then, of course, the summer came and it happened very rapidly and rather chaotically. So explain what happened to both the staff members. You had a large staff in Kabul working on this project, maybe outside of Kabul as well, as well as these, you know, 1,700 women that were now employed by this civil service. What happened to these people during those sort of months of evacuation or weeks, I should say? It all happened rather quickly. It did. It really happened within a window of 15 days. So we saw Kabul overtaken on August 15th, but we knew that the U.S. troops would be withdrawn by August 31st. So we didn't here in the U.S. think for a minute that there would be an extension or an agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban or the quasi-Afghan government to allow a longer period of time. I don't think anybody could have anticipated the crazy chaos. Where the airport is located, on the other side of the main wall, the brick wall, the concrete wall, was my compound. So when we saw the bombing of Abbey Gate, that was the main entry and exit point from my compound to access the airport. So of course, I was glued to the media. I, I mean, it was like an illness. I just, I couldn't turn it off. And then to see that our compound was totally overtaken, I realized I don't have a home. And then I stepped back and said, okay, wait a minute. It's not happening to me. I'm sitting here in Colorado quite safe. But thinking of all of my staff trying to push through those terrible crowds, trying to get to the airport. So I have the story of one of my staff members, and I'll use the name Seema because she'd prefer not to be recognized. Seema pushed 
through those crowds with her two sisters. And she couldn't get through Taliban. She couldn't get through people that were protecting the airport itself. But she saw a U.S. military man and she handed him her passport and her sister's passport and opened it to the page where it showed that she was eligible for the U.S. special immigration visa. He closed them, put them in his pockets, and gave them his hand to help got them safely into the airport where they sat for two days with no food, no water, no access to facilities because it's pure chaos by this time. But they sat, they waited, they got boarding passes, they were able to fly out through Bahrain and then into Washington, D.C., and then they were put in a camp here in the United States for two months. They've only just now reached Metro D.C. where they'll begin to settle. She was so grateful for that military man and his helping hand. I mean, when she told me the stories, tears were in her eyes. But we have to recognize, too, she and her sisters were one of the lucky few. Thousands upon thousands did not get out. How many on your staff were unable to get out? From August 15th until now, we've only gotten out less than a dozen. And oh, it's heartbreaking because we're talking about my team 2004. And then a few of the interns have gotten out and we're talking about over 3,000. And then we haven't even scratched the surface of human rights defenders yet. So you, you can see how the numbers are just huge. My list alone is 4,000 men rights defenders. And would they be eligible for evacuation under any U.S. government scheme? Some are and some aren't. And some have applied and some haven't. Some have passports and some don't. So there are so many different levels of prioritization. And we need today to be looking at multiple of different options to help people. They're in fear, they're in hiding, they're running for their lives, they're moving into winter. We have an enormous humanitarian crisis on our hands. It's such an enormous issue that I don't, it's so hard to even know where you begin because you know if you're one of these 4,000 people, 4,500 people that you have on this list who might have eligibility to leave the country because you know you're eligible on some U.S. government scheme, why aren't they able to leave? Like, is the airport closed? Are they not evacuating people? Like, what's the bottleneck in a sense of getting people out? There are many. If you look from the Department of State side, they have three very specific requirements. This criteria must be met or you will not be manifested on a plane. Number one, you have to have a passport. Afghans won't leave without their family. If family members don't have passports, they're not getting out. They must have a special immigration number. In other words, they have to be in the system. And they must have the chief of mission approval. So those three pieces are criteria just on the Department of State. Then if we look at other locations, what well, could we send them to Uzbekistan or India or Pakistan? Many of those countries don't want to accept refugees because they feel they have a porous border and that they, they will just be inundated. Now we have a lack of political will. What well, could we send them to Europe? What do we have there? A lack of political will. Could we send them to Africa? Well, Afghans really don't know much about Af Africa. They're afraid to go there or South America. So there's so many moving levels of problems. You have to have very strict focus on what you think you can do. Here's what I can do. I can make sure I have all the documentation that I need 
for the people that I need to move. I can make sure that I put it in an encrypted platform so that personal private information is kept safe. I can attempt to work with diplomats to see if there's a location they're now calling them lily pads, where people could go and be safe until they can move to another country. So I can fundraise. I guess what's so amazing about this is that what you're talking about is this civil society response. And it's quite amazing that there's, you know, there's people all over the world trying to fundraise, trying to help individuals stuck in Afghanistan find one of these lily pads to then sort of move on from there to their final destination, whatever it is. But yet this is a program that was funded by a government, by the U.S. government. So, I mean, you know, what does this say about the U.S. responsibility to the individuals that it was employing, in a sense, even if through chemonics, but it was still U.S., in a sense, U.S. taxpayer money that was funding all of these people that have now just been stranded? It's such a frustrating question. So when, when you sit back and look at it from my perspective, Almost all people that have gotten out have been prioritized over my people. So for the DOD, the translators, linguists have been prioritized. For high-level government officials, some diplomats have been prioritized. It's emotional, so let me gather myself. And then there's the frustration that cats and dogs have been prioritized over human life. Athletes have been prioritized over development workers and human rights defenders. So I have a very high level of frustration toward our government, toward the Department of State, and even toward our client, USAID. Now, that said, there's two recent developments that have given me a glimmer of hope. So at, at the U.S. Department of State, a few weeks ago, Ambassador Beth Jones was brought back in to help keep her focus and the lens for the State Department on this terrible humanitarian crisis. USAID has set up um, what they're calling a CARE coordination team, and that means coordinator for Afghanistan evacuations patient efforts. And they've brought back in Karen Decker. So those are great movements. You know, the question boils down to now is, can they move everybody that needs to get out? And the answer is no. You know, the numbers are just too big. And the requests are, I can't get through my email. So of course, USAID can't get through their email. It's enormous the calls for help that we're getting. So even with these two changes, you know, my, my call to action for Department of State and USAID would be, we still need more clarity. We still need more transparency on how we expediently and safely prioritize development workers and human rights defenders. They have to be attended to. They, they have worked so hard to implement US policy. I mean, and that's what's so frustrating, isn't it? It's like there seems to be a, the U.S. government and also the U.K. government. We've done a show about this in the U.K. I mean, they seem to bear a responsibility here that they are skirting, that they're not actually living up to the priority that they gave development for the past 20 years, right? I mean, it's it's not some new phenomenon of USAID or the UK equivalent, you know, working in Afghanistan. And yet in this moment of crisis, it's as if the government just sort of put their hands up. That's where we come back to civil society again. So that's up to us to raise the advocacy bar. 
So one of the things that we've been doing from the Kamonic side is briefing representatives and senators on Capitol Hill. So I think I've done nine briefings today. And you have to do it that that I can raise my voice on behalf of Afghan women and men. Men are human rights defenders too. So if you look from the perspective of one small nonprofit, it's called Women's Regional Network. We work in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India. And we've been deeply engaged in trying to do everything we can to, one, raise awareness, amplify our voices, and fundraise. And and I'll talk about that as well, too. Then there's another group called Afghan Evacuation Coalition. And right now, I think we're around five members of the coalition, including Women's Regional Network. And we're trying to not only do advocacy that we need help on getting people out, but advocacy that we need clarity on where we can send them. I mean, if we're if we're shrinking where we can send them, and Doha is the only location, then how on earth are we going to process the hundreds and thousands of people that want to move. So the idea right now is that people that can get on planes, which of course seems to be few and far between, but if you do get on a plane, you're going to Doha? That's what's happening for the most part? That depends. You're going to Doha if you have a passport and the SIV number and the chief of mission. You're not going there if you don't have those three things. So the question then becomes, where are you going? That's the lily pad question. So if someone has to go to a third country and wait before they can get to Doha to be processed, then what about food, shelter, and clothing? How do we take care of them as they wait to go to this next location? So you can see how there's all kinds of levels of disconnect to keep people safe. So what's happening here is that there's the U.S. government might be processing processing some people meeting those three requirements, and then they go to Doha, and they wait in Doha to get resettled to the U.S., but that could take months. That could take definitely 21 days and maybe a month. In a camp, and they're basically staying there until they're reprocessed and resettled, and then at that point, they're allowed to to work and live in a sense normally, but maybe not that normal. Okay, so and in a sense, those are the lucky ones that make it all the way through that process. The other option that you're talking about is people through civil society get on planes, chartered planes that fly to some third country, a lily pad, and they have the support to live there while processing all the paperwork to move to their final destination, assuming it might be the U.S. They hope it will be the U.S., and that's another level of disconnect. How can we bring everyone to the U.S.? We can't. Our immigration policy will never allow it. We need to be negotiating with other countries that say they can come and live here for a year and we'll provide X amount of resettlement funds to help them do so. And and this is where diplomacy, in my humble opinion, isn't working right now. And I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm a development officer. But I just see so many levels of need and a huge lack of coordination. We need more coordination. And that's what the larger coalition is about. And so tell me a little bit about this fundraising effort. So, you know, how much money do we even think is needed, where is this money going and what is the money paying for? That's a great scenario. So in conjunction with the Women's Regional Network, I started a sub-campaign on GoFundMe. 
and it's called Friends of Afghan Women in Government. And our our 100% goal is to move as many as my staff and interns and human rights defenders that we can. We set the target at a million dollars. Now, we recognize that target's too low to move the huge number of people that we need to move. We're talking about 4,500 people. A million dollars is a good start point. But we need to make one start point and move a group of people so that we can re-engage some hope in Afghanistan. I I just see such a lack of hope. So the money itself will go either to a charter, which is expensive, it's averaging around $650,000, or to commercial planes that are flying to a location where we want to go. Now, after the end of August, August 31st, we weren't getting any commercial planes in. Today, in both Kabul and Mazar, more commercial flights are landing. So there is a possibility to move to other countries. Then some of the money will have to be spent on on living expenses, food, shelter, clothing, if they haven't got the right things. I mean, so many people leave with just a small bag at hand. But we also safe transportation to the airport. I've got a number of people that need to be in safe houses. All of those things have to be paid for as well. So you could look at the fund as safeguarding men and women who were development workers and human rights defenders. And how much have you raised to date? Yeah, it's sad what we've raised. We've raised about $29,000 on GoFundMe. We have a a private family foundation donation of $15,000. And this is just getting underway. And it's Christmas, holidays are coming up. So we recognize that the campaign will need to run into 2022 but it's set up now and it's ready to go and it's very specific it's for a particular group of people that carried out u.s policy in their work in development and has anyone been evacuated through this route that you've set up at this point or is that sort of to be determined no what we're doing this is intentional so we made a board decision that we would build the fund as high as we could so we could move as many as we could so if we do one off then we spend all of our time just trying to move one person we need to be moving in groups so the one-off we're trying to do through department of state and to get them with their three criteria cannot meet the Department of State criteria, but still need to be evacuated for safety. So for those who are listening, who might want to help this effort, what can they do? There are three things, and I love that you're asking me this question. We talked about the fund itself, the GoFundMe, definitely donate. And Every amount helps because for the larger dollars, they're not always interested in what you have raised, but how many people have donated. So if you want to send $10, thank you, because that goes a long way. And you can think of that as being 10 points of light that brought someone hope. The other thing is to advocate. I'm not the only one that needs to be speaking to elected officials. We need constituents within their state to call their elected officials and ask outright, please safeguard at-risk Afghans. And then to amplify. So if they've listened to your wonderful podcast, Will, to please share it with others. If they've seen one of my 16 days stories, I have a whole program running now to hopefully end gender-based violence. My um, campaign is 16 Days and 16 Afghan Stories. 
read those little vignettes and share those 16 stories and drive more of your friends and family to the donor site. Suzanne Jalbert, thank you so much for joining Freshhead and thank you for this huge effort that you are continuing to shine light on a on a tragedy that unfortunately has really fallen out of the sort of press. We don't see it that often anymore. So thank you for keeping this fight going. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about commodics and what we've done and to talk about our program, Winneman in Government. It's been a pleasure, Will. Suzanne Jalbert currently serves as Senior Advisor at Chemonics. If you want to donate to support Suzanne's efforts to evacuate more Afghans, there is a link in the show notes. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Aktis, Obafemi Ongunle, Dian Jiang, Annabelle Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.